The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would, open your copies of The Pilgrim's Progress And by way of review, Christian has left a city by the name of, I'll be looking for interaction early today, Destruction. Uh, did his wife and his family go with him at this point? Negative. When they were pleading with him with cries and with sobs, he left yelling, what? Life, life, eternal life, and pursued uh, the city that is uh, eternal, a celestial city. He's followed by two characters. Obstinate. Do you want to be either of these individuals? No, you don't want to be. Obstinate uh, wasn't really interested in listening. It uh, was just interested in kind of foisting upon Christian uh, his own uh, wants and wishes. He goes back. There is an eagerness, an early eagerness, in pliable to listen. And as they're talking, I'm looking for this one. Um, it's on page seven of mine, but I'll just read it to you so you can hear it. There's an interesting interaction that I didn't draw when we covered this uh, section. Pliable is asking Christian about the country to which he's going, and uh, Christian is talking about all of the wonderful things that are ahead of them. And you'll remember Plowbo keeps saying, and what else? And what more? And he's really interested in the benefits that come from God, not so much God himself. And there's this beautiful interaction, and I do have to give uh, honor to whom honor is due. So Mark Barnett is the one who's like, you missed this part. And he's listening from home, so there you go, Mark. Um, it's in the middle of page seven. Christian says, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue. Yet, but, uh, but yet since you are desirous to know, I will read them in my book, Pliable. And do you think that the words of your book are certainly true? Christian's response, yes, verily, for it was made by him who cannot lie. What a response. That is just absolutely fantastic. They fall into the slough, Amen. as some would say. <laughs> like Paul, I have to become all things to all people and to the uneducated. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> he gets through the slough of despond and he uh, goes to the narrow gate or the wicked gates and is pulled through by an individual of the name of Goodwill. And who did Pastor Brian think that Goodwill was? Jesus, yeah, yeah. We think that the person whose Goodwill is, is a figure representing Christ. Uh, does Christian enter through the gate on his own? Under his own power? No. Uh, who has to pull him through by the, well, either the nap of the neck or the front of the collar? Goodwill. Is that the same way that uh, the goodwill is still saving Christian or pilgrims to this day. Yeah. Now, somebody's got to tug a little harder on, uh, and they put up a, well, a pathetic little fight, but he always wins. His arm is just simply too strong. So, 
after he's pulled through the uh, narrow gate, uh, he has an interaction with Goodwill, and uh, I think we covered just the, the briefest little pieces of that last time. And picking up round about page 25 in the green copy, uh, about halfway down, uh, Christian is told to go on from there, um, and it says, then Christian began to gird up his loins. That is a phrase that's not really popular now, uh, but he, he's getting ready for the journey that's ahead of him, and he, would, uh, he was told that he would go to the house of an individual whose name was interpreter, he should knock, would be given admittance, and we would pick up from there. So he goes to interpreter's house. An interpreter is someone who stands, uh, oddly enough, or maybe not so oddly, in contrast to a previous advisor we've already run into. Who would goodwill, or who would uh, interpreter stand in contrast to? We've already met him. Worldly wise man. As one person who uh, gave a lecture up here said, I don't want to point out names, but it wasn't me or Brian, said that uh, I think it was obstinate or worldly wise men had a beard, and I didn't appreciate you know, that that evoked in Charlie's mind untrustworthiness. <laughs> Some things we say out of envy, and so maybe he's, you know, I don't know. But he goes and he, he's set in contrast both to worldly wise men as well as maybe subtly uh, those to whom worldly wise men told Christian to go talk to, Mr. Legality and his pretty son, Civility, at the town of Morality, I believe, yeah. So as he goes to Interpreter's House, Interpreter's House uh, tends to be one of, it can't be like the only, but it's one of the most beloved sections in Pilgrim's Progress. If you ask kind of folks who've read it or reread it or reread it again, what's your favorite part uh, very few people are like, ooh, like the castle of despair. <laughs> That's usually not a real page turner. Often, uh, or, or the whole scene in Vanity Fair, I, f- I find some of the most difficult reading, not because it's hard, because uh, it's really tough. It's sad, right? Though I don't want to give me spoilers away if you haven't read that part yet. Uh, but uh, the, the passage Charlie alluded to where he goes through the river, obviously is going to be one of the favorites, but often among the uh, favorite passages is going to be Interpreter's House. One author who's uh, written on the characters of Pilgrim's Progress, Alexander White, uh, in in kind of picturing what is this place, a a house of interpretation, and a person who does the interpreting, he answers the question, he says, every minister of the gospel is an interpreter, and every evangelical church is, is an interpreter's house. There is no house in all the earth after the gate itself that is more dear to the pilgrim heart than the the interpreter's house. So it is being pictured here as as, um, pilgrim, now Christian, comes through the gate and is pulled through by the, the person imaging the Lord Jesus Christ. What's kind of that first place that a Christian in this world should go to? Well, they should go to a faithful Bible-preaching, gospel-believing church. How desperately important is that for brand-new believers to quickly find a church that uh, unashamedly 
and clearly declare all that God has said. Have you ever seen a Christian who gets saved? This is one of my uh, things that I don't like about parachurch organizations where people get saved and they're just left out there on their own. They're not directed to a church. They're not directed to a certain, maybe even like collection of churches, like, hey, search the fire website or search the RBNet churches. or search. They're just sent out there and told to figure it out on their own. What a terrible, terrible way to, well, not direct, but to fail to direct folks towards the right thing. A faithful church is an interpreter's house, and a faithful minister of the gospel is himself uh, functioning like an interpreter. It's said uh, that there are seven rooms in an interpreter's house. I, I don't know how many bathrooms would be involved in there, but sufficient amounts, I would think. So, apparently that wasn't funny at all. So, we're just going to move on. We're going to look at an ambitious number would be the first four rooms today. I want to get through the, the room with the picture, the room with the dust on the floor, the room with uh, the two kids, and I'd like to end on the room with the fireplace because the man in the iron cage is going to take a fair bit of time next uh, Lord's Day as well. So if you notice, the first thing that is done when they enter interpreter's house is that interpreter calls for a candle to be lit. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm of the belief that just about everything in Pilgrim's Progress was put there on purpose. He seems very, very intentional. So what would, if you've read through this section, what would the candle be? The house is a church, the interpreter's a, a minister. What would the idea of a candle represent? The word might be one of them. The Holy Spirit, I think it would actually be a function of what the Holy Spirit does. Illumination. Yeah, that there's actually the need to not just see these things, but there's a need to understand these things. There's a lot of Christians who know a lot of things about the Scripture, but could we say it this way? They don't understand them. They do not understand how these things impact their life. So early on, already in the interpreter's house, we would see uh, the the role uh, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work enlightening and enlivening these things to the heart of the Christian, which I think would lead us to believe that we should be actively, regularly praying that the Spirit would illumine these things in our heart. That just as we hear the word, it is not simply enough to hear it. It's not enough for it to fall in your ears and your eardrums and to work its way on where you say, like, I have some knowledge of what is said. These things actually must penetrate to the heart. They actually need to go down deeply into our bones. I I cannot, time would fail me to tell you of the times where uh, a person sitting down to talk with me knew much about the Bible, and at times I would even say it this way, they knew much about God, but I wasn't sure if they knew God. You understand that there's a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. Kids in particular, this is something I emphasize for you who are raised in the church, do not mistake your knowledge of God or about God to be knowing him personally and individually. 
It's not just enough to know the details of what we teach here. They must be yours, down in your bones. So they light the the candle. They go into the first room. Uh, These things are uh, given so that uh, these truths or these lessons would actually guide pilgrim or Christian through the rest of his journey from where he's at to the celestial city. So Bunyan is going to take what he thinks are seven really, really key things that every Christian should know on their journey to, well, to in our case, to be to Zion, right? So whether you're new in the faith or medium in the faith or mature in the faith, all of these things are needful from the very first day through the gate to even when you're on the shores of the river ready to cross. You're going to need all of these aspects. It's not like you get a few of them down, you use them for a season, you outgrow them or they wear out. That's not it at all. You actually need to understand each and every one of these lessons to faithfully navigate the Christian life, right? That's why this house is right here after the narrow gate. So the first room that he's brought in, and again, I'm going to try to not read all of it, but it's just so good. It is, uh, it is one of my favorites, if not the absolute favorite uh, in the book. So on page 26 of the green copy, uh, interpreter invites him to come in. They light the candle, and so he takes him to a private room, and he bids him open the door, to which he is done. And Christian saw a picture of a very grave man. Does anyone have a different word besides grave or marginal reading? Serious expression. So he was a Baptist, whoever this is. That wasn't the word I was looking for, but it worked out beautifully. Any others? Important? Wow, I like that, especially with where I'm going to take this. Anything else? Mine says brave in the margin. That seems to be a, a wide variety of meaning between important, grave, serious-faced, and what was the other one? Brave. That, this seems to be a, a very broad, uh, so I don't know what the original word that he used there, or uh, but this person seems to be, uh, you can see how grave or serious could also go along with brave, right? Obviously, obviously when someone is brave, they're usually not smiling like they're laughing at a joke. They're, they're usually quite intense. My wife, especially early on, I don't know if she's given up or if I've changed, I, either one. She used to say that I, I need to smile in my, when I'm preaching. And I was like, why? I am. She goes, yeah, the face you make, is that's not smiling. So well, I'm smiling in my heart. So it doesn't count. So... Either I've changed or she's just, you have picked her battles differently. So uh, he's a grave man and he's described here, just, and he goes through the list just really quick. So y- you can imagine it, it's similar to if you ever go to an art museum, it would be like one of those rooms with, you know, everything is drawn to this picture. You might think you've never seen the inside of an art museum. I have one time and that was one more time than I needed. So we actually went to the Getty when we were in uh LA and time travels way slower at museums than in any other time in history. So the coolest part was that these rocks were brought over from the quarry they made the uh, Colosseum from. I'm like, now I could get behind rocks. This is cool. But that was about all that I got out of the whole trip. 
So he goes and he sees this picture. It's of a very serious man. And look down at the description. It says uh, this picture was hanging on the wall and, the, and uh, it, his eyes were lifted to heaven. He had the best book in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. The word was, or the world was behind his back. It, it stood as if pleaded with men. And a crown of gold did hang over his head. Now, before we get into the next section, we should kind of pick apart what each of these descriptions mean, because he'll, he won't actually unpack all of these. He takes it in a different direction here in a second. So the picture is of a person whose eyes are lifted up uh, to heaven. Uh, some would think, uh, well, actually, I'll get there here in just a second. Um, no, I'll get there right now. Some think that uh, this would also be in the image of John Guilford, his, his old pastor. So the person being described, uh, we believe to be a faithful Christian minister. I'll, I'll kind of help sell why I think that is the case here in just a minute. If the scowl didn't give away faithful Baptist minister, I don't know what more I can say to convince you, but uh, his eye, so he's grave or he's brave, a true minister, uh, yes, can tend to be a serious person, and that might have to do with their personality or lack of personality, but that's probably not what John Bunyan's drawing out. He's, not, he's probably not saying like, yeah, some of you people, you got these pastors have no sense of humor, though that might be. Um, what would he be indicating by grave or serious? Think about it. He goes out of his way to mention that that's what the person looks like. Sober-minded. Who said that? We're here somewhere? Yeah. Sober-minded is one of them. What's another implication of it? Serious, but why is he serious? Yeah, Absolutely. So on, um, on a Lord's Day, think about it uh, in this context. What is at stake? Pastor Brian's preaching the gospel, and you know not every person in the room is saved. Their soul. Is that a laughable kind of thing? No, no. And there's times where you feel it uh, more than others, and there's times where you feel it you know, not as strong, but uh, the true minister of the gospel preaches to a people who sit as if the chasm of hell was open on one side and the heights of heaven were on the other. It's you, you preach to folks in between those. That brings weight to it, especially when you can tell there are those who aren't nearly taking their soul seriously enough. That, that is absolutely heartbreaking. I think it was, um, I think it was Piper. He said, you can smell the sulfur of hell on one half of the church and the breeze of heaven on the other. That's the kind of ministry, which is why we're, we're not really big fans of entertaining people. It's not our goal. Our goal is the health and the welfare and the eternal security of each and every soul that would come in here. Especially when we look out and we see new folks or you've brought family members or friends that we know you've been praying for. You really feel that. You, you see that. So why is he a grave or serious person? 
It's because the task at which he's been given to do is a serious, grave task. He knows that there's heaven on one side and hell on the other. His eyes are lifted up to heaven. What would that be? Bill's already alluded to it. He's interceding. That's one. Focused on what? On heaven. So that's his goal. That's his goal. So in some sense, it's, it's a sense of praying or looking up to God. In another sense, uh, to whom does this person receive orders? Yeah, well, from heaven, not from, not from people. And so you could think of the way that maybe Psalm uh, 123 verse 2 puts it, Behold, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of his master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh God. That's the, the picture of the faithful minister, just like a servant would watch, you know, you could imagine the master sitting down, and as the hand is lifted to give an order, they would lean forward and listen intently for what, what does the master want? What is the, the, the one in charge desire? Well, that's, that's the image of the minister here. He looks to heaven and receives orders from heaven. In fact, there's a, a beautiful text. I was talking to Charlie about it earlier this week. Maybe I'll preach it. Here's just a, a, a one-off sermon here uh, soon. Luke 17 it talks about this image of a servant. And uh, the question that Jesus puts to the group listening is, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, will say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's, that's in one sense, the faithful pastor's position. In another sense, isn't that every Christian's position? That they're not going to go to heaven and be like, Lord, look at all that I did for you. All they could say, I did what you said. Nothing more could be added to that. You commanded, I obeyed. You're the Lord, I'm the servant. And that's the end of the discussion. Now, I was looking for, where's Johnny? Oh, he's letting me down. He's serving. Johnny, it says he has the best book under his arm. What book is that? Which one? My man. I knew you'd have my back. <laughs> He's got the best book under his arms, obviously the ESV. Obviously. <laughs> He's a man of one book. Doesn't matter the translation. Unless it's the New World, in which case it matters, because it's different. So, he's a man of one book. I don't want to read too much into it. What is not under his arm? That's exactly what I had in mind, actually. He doesn't have a boatload of tradition under his arm. He doesn't have edicts from popes. He has the book. Now, he'd be accused in our, in our day of being a biblicist. What a lovely title that I would embrace. 
Someone accuses me of being too biblical. I'm like, thank you, man. (laughs) What a compliment, even though they didn't mean it that way. He's a man of one book. Not lots of different books. His nose isn't stuck in every newspaper. Well, that's an archaic reference, I guess. Uh, Or any news outlet or whatever it is. He's a man of the book and only that book. And if he ever veers away from that book, he's not a faithful minister anymore. He's not uh, to have his own thoughts and opinions under his arm. He's to have the book under his arm. That is what you want in a faithful minister of the gospel, that they declare the word of God, not their thoughts and opinions. Now, sometimes their thoughts on like vegetables or salad comes out, but you would recognize it as being ridiculous and you just, you know, graciously move on with them. So, He's got the best book on his arm. He has the truth on his lips, so it's not just something inside, but something that he speaks and declares. Bunyan says his work is to both know and unfold dark things or unclear things to sinners. His, uh, the world is at his back. What would that indicate? That he doesn't care for them? I don't think that. He's not influenced. Yeah, he's not pandering after the mob. He's not looking to be received and praised and welcomed and celebrated by the world. So the things the world fears, he does not fear. The things the world loves, he doesn't love. Does he care for the world? Yeah, he cares for the souls of those in the world, but he's not pandering after the approval of them, nor does he fear them. So if the world hates him, that's nothing more than what the word of God promised would happen. He shouldn't be shocked. He shouldn't be swayed by it. He shouldn't uh, even lose sleep over it. And he also shouldn't be drawn away at the thoughts or prospects of being liked by the world. Does that give um, pastors or, by extension, just Christians, license to be jerks? No, that's a big mistake I see made, especially on the interwebs, right? We think, well, I'm... I'm right, so I can be a jerk about it. No, you're just a jerk. Who happens accidentally to be right, perhaps? There's a world of difference between being bold and full of conviction and being a jerk. Be bold, be full of conviction. Don't be a jerk, right? If ever you uh, peddle in truth and not love, Paul seems to think you're like an obnoxious two-year-old whacking on a cymbal. It's in the Greek, trust me. So, you're a noisy gong. You are what happens when friends who, well, people say they're your friends, give your kids toys that make noise, which is a mark of an enemy, not of a friend. Paul says that's you and all your truth on your reform blogs on Facebook. You're a loud kazoo and nothing more, right? So this man is not a jerk. He's actually just bold and pursuing uh, what uh, his Lord has for him. And he knows it will cost him. We'll get more to this. We'll uh, say more on this later on. But there is a cost involved with having your back to the world. The picture stands as though pleading with men. That's the job of this person. And there's a crown of gold hanging over his head. It's not on his head, but it hangs over it. What would that indicate? Future reward. 
Yeah, he actually has his eyes on a prize that isn't had in this world. So Revelation uh, 2 verse 10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Or 1 Corinthians 9, 25, uh, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable uh, wreath, the word is crown, you for an imperishable one. Bunyan says, sliding and despising the things that are present for the love that he has for his master's service. He's sure in the world that comes next to have glory as his reward. So there's a, there's a lot of details in just how he describes this picture that's hanging on the wall. He's that faithful minister. We'll get to why, in particular, I'm convinced it is specifically a minister here in a second. But then he says something super weird at the bottom of 26. And Christian says, what does this mean? That's not the weird part. Uh, an interpreter says, uh, the man whose picture this is is one of a thousand. That's not like one in every thousand. Seems to think of it one of a thousand that are, which I think gives us a peek into uh, the theological and evangelical landscape of Bunyan's day, right? He wrote during very difficult times, and it seems like his thought that uh, ministers were not a a dime a dozen. This is weird because it almost sounds like modern-day vocabulary. Uh, He can beget children, which I feel like we need to to explain in our day. He's not saying men can have babies, despite what the world says. When I read this, I was like, oh my goodness, I have to talk about this. Uh, He can travel in birth with children. What are you talking about? And nurse them himself. He had no idea that we would have to explain this in our own day. Men can't have babies travel with giving birth or nurse them. Just we're just going to be clear on that. That is something God gave only to ladies. So he is uh, actually depicting here the a role of a minister as being a bit of a spiritual father, right? So 1 Corinthians, you should have over in the margin, if you have marginal notes, you should see scriptures like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, where uh, birth imagery is used of ministers. So for 1 Corinthians, for though you've countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, but I become a father in Christ through the gospel to you. Galatians 4, my little children whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So he's, he's taking imagery that is involved with child, childbirth and parenting, and he's saying, yeah, that's what happens spiritually. I bet if you even thought back In your own Christian walk, there are ministers or mentors who are like a father to you. I've had the pleasure of several such men, and I forget even how or when this person came up today, but when I read this passage, I thought of um, one of my dear friends, Richard Winters, who was an older man of faith who always would sit in the row in front of us and his prayers and his instruction to me as a young man shaped me. And I will, for I mean, until heaven, will miss that mentorship, that spiritual father. That, that, that's what he's pointing here, that there are those who have such an influence, it's as though they are a father or a parent to us in the faith. And so 
if you uh, look over on page 27, he'll actually tell you why this room is the first room. There's even an order or a logic to which rooms come in what orders. He says over on the top of 27, uh, now, uh, interpreter, I, I've showed you, or shooed you, uh, this picture first. I think it's important. It's, if he's going out of his way to say, there's a reason this room is the first one, it's for this reason. Because the man whose picture this is, is the only man that the Lord of the place, uh, whither thou art going, hath organized to be thy guide in all difficult places thou mayst meet with in the way. You might say that was a lot to take in all at once. There's a lot of THs in there. This man, faithful minister, is authorized by God to be that faithful guide. Did we just read of a guide that he listened to that he ought not have listened to? His name was? Worldly wise man. Did it uh, almost make uh, destruction or devastation of his soul? Yeah, it did. He wrote this. Well, we'll get one more piece down. Therefore, uh, take good heed of what I've showed you. Bear well in mind what you've seen. Lest in any journey thou meet with some other that pretend to lead thee right, but their way goes down to death. He says there's a lot of false teachers out there. He said this before the internet. Imagine what he'd say now. He says, Christian, there's a lot of people out there who will be quick to teach and quick to say we lead you to life, and they don't. So look for men like this. Look for men who are grave, serious, Bible under their arm, eyes on heaven, not on the world, back to the world, prize in heaven pursuing that. That's the kind of faithful guide. And there are a myriad of false ones. You probably have experienced this either personally or through the life of someone else. Some of the scariest words I've ever heard is, so I've been reading a book. Oh no, what are you reading? Well, it's this. And you're like, oh no. No, you've, no, don't read that. Don't read that. Well, but he says that he's going to unlock my... Cr- yeah, I know, yeah I, know what he, I know what he says. One of the most dangerous, although they're almost obsolete now, one of the most dangerous places in the world was a Christian bookstore. Now it's a Christian blog. Anyone who wants to be quick to tell you that they can help uh, unlock uh, some kind of spiritual life hack to your life, uh, I'd be very suspicious. really would. So this is a protection against being led astray. The application here would be both for yourself and for those in your life that you love. Always either be in yourself, a faithful gospel preaching church, or direct your friends to them. I cannot tell you how many times I've had folks who are at a good church and there's an opportunity and they move. My question is, well, where are you going to go to church? And they go, oh, I'm sure I'll find something. Oh, no. Don't think that. You make sure that there is a good gospel preaching, faithful church there. And I would go check that out. But, like, but the job, I'm like, yeah, but I don't care about the job. Jobs can be had. Churches are rare. I've seen folks make a real mess of their faith, assuming we'll find, we'll, we'll find this somewhere else. 
No. When you find a good one, or if one of your friends does, or you know how to direct them to it, direct them to faithful places. It is, I think, one of the most, if not the most powerful influence on the life of a Christian. We have to move on. Otherwise, we'll be in interpreter's house for seven weeks, and that's not what the schedule says. So, number two in the middle of 27, takes him by the hand and leads him to a very large parlor that's full of dust. Apparently, this room is in Nevada. We don't really have dust in Washington. We have mud. So, he takes him to a room. uh, It's full of dust. It's never been swept. And uh, there's a person who comes in. And the man sweeps it. Now the dust begins to fly and the dust becomes so abundant that it flies about. Christian uh, is choked by it. And then the interpreter calls in a, a lady or, or a damsel, uh, which is a very fancy word there. Uh, and he stood by and she sprinkles water into the room and then the room is cleaned up quite easily. Christian obviously says, what was that about? What's up with the the guy with the broom and the dust? And then this lady comes in and sprinkles water around, and then it's way better. Uh, Interpreter says this parlor is very straightforward. This is the heart of man. Okay, very straightforward. And the dust is his original sin and his inward corruption. So the dust is the sin in his heart, and it's the sin that defiles the entire man. What began to sweep at first is the law. So you've seen this often in the life of a person. I mean, if they're lost as lost can be, and they've not been confronted with the law of God, do they tend to be at war within themselves over sin? No. Are they really grieved over it? No. So how many people have you met where they're, they're really comfortable in their sin? That's the room covered in dust without the sweeping. And then the law goes in and, and dusts everything up, and things seem to be like way worse. Maybe this was your experience when you started coming as, as, as Christ lovingly drew you to himself, and the law came in, and you all of a sudden realized, like, I'm way worse than I ever imagined I was. And the more I go on in life, I seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. That's the law stirring up what is already there. It's not putting in something that wasn't there before. It's simply making you aware of stirring it up. Now, does the law, in this case, fix the dust? doesn't. So I can't just tell someone who's not believing, like, hey, knock it off, stop sinning. Like, oh, great, thank you for telling me that. Now I won't. Like, no, that actually doesn't fix it. What needs to happen, and he explains this, the water that comes in, well, the water is the water of the gospel. So are both law and gospel needed? Yeah. Should you have the one without the other? No, you should not have the one without the other. And so she comes in and sprinkles uh, the, well, the room, which would be the heart, and it settles the dust, and it's able then to be cleansed. On the top of verse or verse 28, chapter 28, uh, it says, Instead of cleansing the heart from sin, the law does revive and even put strength into it and increase it in the soul, even as it does discover and forbid it, for it does not have the power or give the power to subdue. Boy, that sure sounds like a lot of different scriptures. The law 
it, it, it stirs up but doesn't have the power to remove it. it wasn't its purpose. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is what cleanses a heart from sin. And that's where sanctification begins to take place, where the, the dust is actually swept up and cleaned and removed. Uh, it says the, the water that the damsel sprinkles is, is so that sin is vanquished and subdued and the soul make, made clean through the faith of it. Now listen to this. Consequently, fit for the king of glory to inhabit. What a beautiful picture of the way that God uses the law to uh, cause us to be aware of our sin and then sends the water of the gospel to cleanse us from that sin and makes it fit for the king of glory to reside in. All of it is work. It's, it's, be- it's a, just a beautiful picture of, uh, of sanctification uh, in the heart of a man or woman or child who believes in Christ. So both would be needed. Both are at hand. And if ever you, when you hear, uh, when you hear the law declared and you're like, my goodness, I'm a wretch. It's actually doing what it should. It's, it's rising within you a knowledge of sin. But don't stop there. Run to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be cleansed. Run to the forgiveness that flows from Calvary and find real forgiveness and cleansing, and God is faithful in his work. We have to get at least number three done because I have no idea how we're going to do the rest next time. So uh, number three, moreover, I saw my dream. Interpreter took me by the hand into a little room, and there sat two children, each one in his chair. The name of the eldest, now here's, I didn't have a chance to track this down. My Version says the name of the eldest was Passion. Does anyone have a different name? The one that that, uh, Derek Thomas uses, his name is Reason. Okay. Christ is averted. Everyone has Passion. So I like the name Passion because it's fitting for this young person. The other one is Patience. And so he goes in and he sees two kids. One of them's name is Passion. You've met this kid. You might have sired this kid. And he's discontent, and you're like, well, I guess my kid's not the only one. Uh, And the other one, oddly enough, is named patient and is very patient. Wouldn't that stand out like a sore thumb? I mean, it'd be a welcomed thing to see in a child, but are kids marked by patience? I guess one of mine is here. Mine weren't. Yeah, I wasn't as a kid. And the ones I see run around the church, uh, also not. So, um, these two obviously representing two different kinds of folks. The first one, passion, is the kind of person who wants the comforts, joys, and satisfactions here in this life right now. Is that not very, uh, well, normal within kids? I think there's a reason why he picked kids to symbolize this. If you ask a kid, do you want like a prize now that's small or a much greater one later? Uh, Most of them are going to take the one right now and then they'll want the other one later also, but that's neither here nor there. So this one wants the immediate gratification or satisfaction in life. This is the person who wants to, if I could steal from a false shepherd, uh, they want to have their best life now. 
Yeah, they, they think that the things in this world, the toys of it, the experiences of it, uh, they should live them out fully now. Now, that, don't mistake that with what Ecclesiastes says in that there is a proper enjoyment of good gifts. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the person who wants instant gratification in this life, even though, if you look down the page in 28, the governor of them, both of them, would have them wait for the best things. Passion is not willing to wait. Patience is. So passion is offered a bag of treasure immediately, and it's poured at his feet, and he takes it up, and he rejoices. Now notice this. This, it's not enough for passion to receive uh, the rewards in this life immediately. So it's not like he just enjoys them, is content in them, and just lives it out. What does he do to patience? He scorns him and laughs at him. Is that similar to the way the world would view the church in this age? You bunch of fools that think there's a glory to be had in the future. You're wasting it. They're not content to simply enjoy the frivolous things here on this earth. They must mock those who uh, would be patient. Notice that patience quickly spends his money. He lavishes it away. There's nothing left to him except rags. What does that remind you of in the Bible, if you could cut one story in half? It's the first half of the prodigal son. It's like, if the, let's say the story ended with him eating the pods from the pigs. Bunyan says, that's the people of the world. That's those who would never put their faith in Jesus Christ. They devour and devour and devour the things of this world are left empty and paupers. And patience, or the Christian, is willing to wait for what is to come. Over on page 29... He says that, he's, uh, that, that passion wants all things in this year and in this world. These are the men of the world, and they must have their good things now. They cannot wait till next year or until the next world for, their portion, uh, for that portion of good. The proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is more authority to them than all the divine testimonies of the good of the world to come. For them... Immediate gratification holds more authoritative power than what elements of God's word? Thinking of pointing ahead, what what elements of God's word would this outweigh? Anybody. What do we call when God talks about what's coming to the believer? Christian can expect in the age and in the world to come. Absolutely. Do you think that that would mean that they would live differently in this life then? I would think so. The real bummer is when a person who says they're a Christian, who says there is a world and a life to come, also wants all the things now in this life. And so you see them drawn away from obedience for the pursuit of vastly lesser things. You see things like, yeah, we'll meddle, um, sports, push it out. You see things like vacations or career, push out faithful obedience. 
Why? Well, they, they want the things of this life now. And their eye is not piercing the heaven that is to come. Nothing inherently wrong with sport or in having a good job. or It's when those things begin to so grip the heart that you can see the slide with regards to faithful Christian duties. You can watch the downward trajectory. Bunyan says the Christian is to be marked by patience, awaiting what is to come. The world is marked by the things of the here and the now. In the middle of page 29, um, Christian says, now I see that patience has the best wisdom. And that upon many accounts, number one, because he stays for the best things. He's not bought off by the good things or the okay things. He waits for the best things. And secondly, also because he will have, his glo- uh, he will have the glory of his when the other has nothing but rags. An interpreter says basically, yeah, number one and number two were good. You missed a number three. I'd add to it, the glory of the world to come will never wear out. The things of this world are fleeting. The glory that awaits the Christian is not. The the, the treasures of this life can be spent and squandered. The glory of the life to come cannot. And then he goes on to a whole long, confusing section about the first and the last and the last and the first. and the, uh, It wasn't the most edifying piece. But look at the bottom of 29. And with this, we'll wrap it up and only get through three. He says, um, therefore, he has his, uh, well, let me read here. Um, the, the, the patience must have it lastingly. Therefore, it is said of, what does your text say, dives? Dives. In the lifetime thou receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now he's comforted and thou art tormented. Who is Dives or Dives? Yeah, it's actually the, the word that would be used in Latin to describe the rich man in the parable or in the story of rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus has a name. The rich guy does not, so it's actually just the Latin word, I think, for rich. And throughout church history, they've referred to him as dive or divies. I guess it's probably a hick translation to say dive. So it probably is dive, divies. He's referring to the rich man in the story of rich man and Lazarus. The man who would feast and squander. And in the age that, well, in the scene that happens at the end, he can't so much as afford a drop of water for his tongue. Christian says that that's the those are the options set before each and every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. Will they have their eyes fixed on the life that is coming and be willing to suffer in this life with their eye on the next or will they like that greedy child passion say no I want it now. I want what I want and I want it now. It's not the attitude of Christian. Now, that this is, is particularly difficult when you live in a very affluent country like we do. We have all of these things at our fingertips. And, I, and he's not advocating for being a monk or for being these things, but I think he is warning us, watch the grip that they have on your heart. Be careful 
that the subtlety of riches does not lead you astray. And if God calls you or calls you to suffer, will you suffer well? And will you suffer even thankfully? Or like a spoiled brat, do we kick and scream and demand that we have what we want? Bunyan would say that's not the Christian. The Christian is willing in this life to forgo and that they would believe and trust that heaven holds their real reward. Why? Well, there's one very easy answer as to uh, what the reward is in heaven, or should I rephrase it? Who the reward is in heaven, and who would that be? Yeah, why is your reward in heaven? Well, it's because where Christ is. And one day he will come for his own and gather them to himself. And we will have truly the unfading glory of Christ as our own. We live and wait for that day. And we're not bought off by lesser things in the meantime. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would set our eyes on heaven. That we, like the, the stern man, would have our eyes on heaven and our back to the world. We pray that the glory of where your son is now would be where we would set our hearts. Cause us to be careful and watchful against the deceitfulness of riches and comfort and pleasure. Help us to recognize your good gifts as what they are, gifts and not God's. We pray that you would not just guard our hearts from this, but you guard the hearts of our kids. That is, the world calls to them and seeks to allure them that they would recognize and flee from the deceitfulness of riches. Cause them to set their hope and their hearts on heaven. As we worship you today, may we declare, not just with our words, but also in our hearts, that truly Christ is worth more than 10,000 worlds combined. And we would have him unmixed with anything else. We pray this in his name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.